Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is episode 1692, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. It's Friday, December the 11th, 2015. The big show of the week, the Expert Council Call, where we have your questions for our council members. If you want to know all about the council members, get on the survivalpodcast.com and look at About, and you will see under About, you will see Meet the Expert Council, or in today's show notes for 1692, there will be a link directly there. You can learn all about the Expert Council and think about the questions you'd like to ask them. About half the council's on every other week is the way we run things now. Friday shows were going three hours and taking me six to produce, so uh, cut them in half, basically. So each council member, on average, a answers about two questions a month. And that keeps them uh, in front of you guys and keeps them covering a wide variety of subjects and yet lets them go on with their daily lives and do the things they all do because they're all full-time at what they do. Got some great stuff for you from Loom today. Before we get to that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show is here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning-fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day, and I hear, Gee, who's that? It's the postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that. Sponsor of the day number two today, Ready-Made Resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need, ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it at Ready-Made Resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check, they've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can? or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food? You need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers? They've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets? Got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to? They've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast, 
Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, readymaderesources.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1692, because the episode was 1692. I have the Salem Witch Trials and, and Slender Man, and I have Waving the Bloody Shirt and the Whitfield Shirt Cuffs. I have to read the Salem Witch Trials just because it's so well known. Again, these are put together by Alex Shroyd at tspwiki.com. The survival and self-sufficiency wiki that you can contribute to yourself. You say, I don't know how to do a wiki. We even have videos for you. Just go to tspwiki.com to learn more. It is a virtual encyclopedia of survival, self-sufficiency, self-reliance knowledge. And thanks to our largest contributor, Alex Shrugged, an encyclopedia of history as well. Two young girls aged 9 and 11 are having fits that are not epilepsy. That a 12-year-old and a 17-year-old are afflicted. It is judged that they have been bewitched. An investigation is launched to find the witches who cast the spell. The usual suspects are rounded up in question. Some die in custody, including a baby from Sarah Good. A trial has begun. Giles Corey refuses to enter a plea. In the modern day, when this happens, a judge will enter not guilty plea on behalf of the defendant. But no such option exists in the law as of yet. In order to force Giles to make a plea, the court has impressed. That is, they progressively put larger stones on his chest until he speaks or until he's crushed to death. It takes Giles two days to die. Sarah Good is a homeless woman who walks from house to house begging for charity. When she is refused, she walks away muttering to herself. When accused of casting spells, she says she was only reciting her Bible commandments. When the court asks her to recite her commandments, she stumbles through part of a psalm. She's told a fatal lie. Out of 72 accused witches, 19 are found guilty, 14 are women. They're all hung for their crime. My take by Alex Shrug, there's a lot of directions I can go with the Salem Witch Trials. Was it simple hysteria? That's an interesting word. Hysteria is a Latin word which refers to a woman's womb. It was once believed that a woman's volatile mood centered on disturbances within her womb. Nowadays it means uncontrollable panic. I don't think the court panicked. It took months to conduct the investigations, and with the new king and queen taking the throne, William and Mary, the court waited for the new government representatives to arrive. No one was ever burned at the stake, but people did believe in possession and in the walking dead, the zombies, not the TV series. Those were frightening times. It hasn't improved much today. In the summer of 2014, two 12-year-old girls lured their friend into the woods and stabbed her 19 times. They believed that offering their friend up to a sacrifice would cause a slender man to appear. Their friend lived just barely. Slender Man is a fictional internet character whose image appears unexpected places, and, this, and it is a little freaky looking. When I was a kid, I would see graffiti declaring Kilroy was here. It was usually accompanied by a drawing of a man with a long nose peering over a wall. I never thought of him as real, though. As of this writing, December 2015, the trial has been postponed, awaiting a decision on whether a 12-year-old can be tried as an adult. But the law in that state is clear. In a murder case, yes. Um, see, I have a totally different take on this. And I, like Alex said, there's a lot of ways he could go. I bet he'd kind of go this way, too. So when, when I hear something like, These 12-year-old girls stabbing their friends so that Kil, uh, not Kilroy, the, the, the Slender Man will appear. Um, I almost, I, I just look at that and think it's probably just an excuse. They wanted to kill her, and that's what they said they were doing, I, I guess. But I don't see it in any way equivocal to people in 1600s that believed in witchcraft using the state to murder people. I don't. Uh, those two bean-headed young girls acted sadistically on their own, these people acted with the full assistance of the state. 
They even were so good as to wait for the new representatives from the from the the the, the you know, super state, uh, the king's men, to show up so that there was a proper handover of procedure. Months to deliberate. They thought about this carefully, and they chose to murder, absolutely murder, fourteen people. And it's not put them to death. It's not executing them. They murdered them. There's no other word for it. This was murder by the state. And you got to think about that. And at the time, do you know what people would have said? Hey, they were all trying a court of law. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. Witchcraft is a crime. It's punishable by death. They were convicted in a court of law. It's not like it was a stacked deck. I mean, 72 were accused, 19 were found guilty. Okay, 19 were murdered. I'm sorry. I want to leave out the five men that were killed. 19 are found guilty out of 72. Hey, look at all the other ones that weren't found guilty. It is perceived legitimacy by going through a pantomime that allows the state to do much of what it does to aggress on its people. Today, thankfully, people are educated enough. The state can't enforce their will and execute people for witchcraft. But we can do things like put people into a prison cell over the possession or sale of a plant. Future generations will probably look at us almost as poorly as we look back at these people. Something to think about. The more things change, the more at least parts of them stay the same. Uh, next up, let me remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. You can help support the work I do here at the Survival Podcast by joining the MSB, and you'll get a great return on your investment. You know, I say the sponsors help make the show available seven, uh, five days a week, um, but it really is the MSB members that really do that. It really is. the, the spon I say helping to. But the ones that actually enable it are the people that support this show financially. I look at it like I have thousands of sponsors. Each does a little bit, and that enables me to do what I do and bring you the fantastic content that we put together. Uh, and in return for that, it's not like, you know, PBS or something where, like, you know, if you guys donate 200 bucks, I'll give you a crappy tote bag you can get for free uh, at a trade show. It's not like that, right? It's, it's I give you these discounts on things you're probably buying anyway uh, that more than cover the cost of membership many times over for many of our members. Check it out. Go to survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members to learn more. And if you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active due to your prior prior service, or a first responder, like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you qualify for a discount if you email me before, not after you join TSPC service discount the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and uh, I will get back to you with the discount code to save you even more money on an already great deal. One more quick announcement before I get into your first question for expert panel members today. Um, I was supposed to be doing, I call it Operation Locust. We're going to be planting hundreds of locust trees this winter on the property. We're going to do the first wave of that planting uh, tomorrow, except tomorrow now it's going to rain like it always seems to rain. Right now the forecast looks like it might rain in the morning, it might rain in the afternoon, and it will pour in the late afternoon, definitely. If I run this thing, it's going to pour in the morning. And so I've canceled it and moved it till Sunday next week, which as of right now shows a 0% chance of rain. Um, this is one of those situations where I'm damned if I do it and I'm damned if I don't. It is the highly uneloquent but classic paradox. Uh, I already know it's going to happen. It probably won't rain at all till about 7.30 at night now. 
Um, but I also know that if I do this, everybody's going to be miserable, muddy, and disgusting. So if you were coming, you should have got an email from me already. This means that there'll probably be some spaces available for next Sunday if you want to come. I know that's not an ideal date, only five days from Christmas, but it's what we can do now. And I just don't want everybody to be miserable. I can't do next Saturday because we have our big family Christmas party that day, and I, I just can't do that. Anyway, with that, uh, that knocked out, now let's go ahead and uh, take our first question of the day. This one is for one of our most popular council members and lone lady in the mix, Erica Strauss. This question comes from JR. JR says, you've taught us to make yogurt and yogurt cheese. How can we take those skills and recipes and infuse them into a cheesecake? Can we make yogurt cheesecake, Erica? This would be a good time to do that this time of year. Let us know. Hi, TSP. This is Erica from Northwest Edible. And this week's question comes to me from JR, who wants to know how to incorporate yogurt into cheesecake. Great question. So I have a rule of thumb for everyone who wants to try and do this, who wants to incorporate some of their homemade or store-bought yogurt into a traditional New York-style baked cheesecake. Now, with this type of cheesecake, which is what most Americans think of when they think cheesecake, we're typically making the cake with a base of cream cheese, and that's often lightened with a little bit of sour cream. Now, you can always substitute thick, strained yogurt or yogurt cheese for the sour cream aspect that is common in many cheesecake recipes. Thick yogurt and sour cream are excellent substitutes for each other in dressings, dips, and cheesecake is no problem either. So let's say your preferred cheesecake recipe calls for a filling made from two cups of cream cheese, two eggs, a cup of sugar, and a cup of sour cream. Well, if this was your recipe, you could simply substitute in the same quantity of thick yogurt for that sour cream. So in this case, you'd use a cup of thick yogurt instead of a cup of sour cream. And if you follow this basic rule of thumb, substituting yogurt for the sour cream component, you pretty much can't lose. You're you're not going to mess up the texture. Your baking time is going to be the same. And um, the quality and texture is going to be very similar to what you would expect from the traditional cream cheese and sour cream recipe. Now, when I say thick yogurt, you know, in terms of texture, you want your yogurt to be very similar to that sour cream texture when that's the substitution you're making. So if you're starting with plain homemade or store-bought yogurt, you'll want to drain all off some of that extra whey through cheesecloth or a fine mesh sieve lined with a paper towel or coffee filter to get your sort of standard texture yogurt curd a little bit thicker and closer to the sour cream. If you're starting with a Greek-style yogurt that you bought in the store, you may not have to do this. A lot of Greek styles are already strained enough that they're going to be completely compatible from a texture standpoint right out of the carton. Now, if you're straining off extra whey, remember you can use that um, in baking. It's great if you're making no-knead bread. Instead of using the water, you can use whey from your yogurt. It adds to the protein component of the bread, and it also helps the bread last longer. You can also use yogurt whey to feed livestock, including pigs and chickens, and you can um, jumpstart your lacto-fermented vegetables, like your sauerkrauts and your kimchi, with the addition of a little bit of yogurt whey. Okay, so let's say you 
want to make a cheesecake that's less cheese and more yogurt. You're going all in on this yogurt cheesecake idea. Well, you can increase the yogurt to cream cheese ratio in your cheesecake batter. But the more yogurt you add, the further from that traditional dense but creamy, firm cheesecake texture you'll move. And you'll be going more towards kind of a lighter, more moussey texture. So if you like that, that's fine. But if you want that traditional dense cheesecake texture, be wary of going too much yogurt in the batter. If you make a cheesecake from all or mostly yogurt, again, you're going to get better results with very thick, strained whole milk yogurt down to almost that yogurt cheese texture. And you're probably also going to need a bit more egg in your batter to help the custard that is your cheesecake set. So while a custard of two cups cream cheese to one cup yogurt plus some sugar should only need about two eggs to properly set, and you might choose to add a few egg yolks for extra richness in there, but they're not really necessary to have the custard set. If you have a similar volume of cheesecake custard, but made entirely with yogurt, so say like three cups of thick yogurt, that's going to perform far better with three or even four eggs. So this is just because that yogurt curd isn't as strong as the cream cheese curd, and the extra egg just helps support that custard as it's setting up inside that delicious graham cracker crust. Okay, so up to now, I've been talking about a really classic American cheesecake that's tall, dense, creamy. It's usually called New York style. But there are dozens or more types of cheesecake. Cheesecake in some variation has been made since the time of the Romans. So Italian cheesecake usually relies on ricotta and is often dressed up with candied citrus or chocolate. French style is usually made with gelatin and is very light and airy. No-bake cheesecakes are popular as kind of a, you know, easy dessert uh, in the summer often. And they're closer to icebox pies. And they usually rely on products like Cool Whip to help achieve kind of a moussey texture in combination with cream cheese. Some cheesecakes use cottage cheese, and there are even some savory blue cheese-based cheesecakes, but let's just not talk about those for now. So for variations like these, how can you tell if yogurt will work as a substitute or as an addition to your cheesecake batter? Well, again, it's mostly about texture. So if you strain your yogurt down enough to match the texture of an ingredient like sour cream, you should have no problem substituting one for the other. If your recipe calls for sweetened condensed milk or heavy cream, substituting a less thick, more pourable yogurt should work just fine. But now a few tips. With yogurt, the flavor can be a lot more tangy than we would traditionally expect for cheesecake. And the higher percentage of yogurt you use in your cheesecake batter, the more distinctive this tangy flavor is going to be. Now, I think that tangy quality is lovely, but it's something to consider from a flavor profile. You're adding flavor to your cheesecake. So if you had planned on doing something like citrus or berry with your cheesecake, you just want to make sure you're compatible flavor-wise. So something like lemon, strawberry, honey, uh, tropical fruit, all these things would go very well with like a yogurt spiked cheesecake. But To my palate, something like peanut butter or mint or that kind of thing would probably be very unsuccessful paired with that tangy yogurt flavor. Do also keep in mind that the beneficial probiotic bacteria in the yogurt is going to die off in any baked cheesecake. So unfortunately, you will not be able to claim that your cheesecake is a health food, even ironically, no matter how much yogurt you add to it. So I hope these guidelines help you with your yogurt cheesecake idea, JR. I think you're going to have a lot of success, but Don't be afraid to kind of play around and find the variation that's right for you. 
Thanks for your questions, guys. Keep them coming. If you look back through the Expert Council show archives on the Survival Podcast, you'll find a couple of answers I've given where I talk about yogurt and other aspects of dairy fermentation. So if this is something you're interested in, I do invite you to look back through the archives and check those out. And as always, if you guys have any questions about anything I've talked about on today's show, just leave a comment in today's show notes and I will do my best to answer whatever questions you have. I think I'll be back one more time before the end of the month, but if I don't talk to you guys again until 2016, I just want to wish the whole TSP community a very peaceful holiday, Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Until then, come say hi anytime on my site, nwedible.com, or at facebook.com slash nwedible. Thank you, TSP community. Thank you so much. Jack, you guys be well, and I'll talk to you later. Uh, great stuff as always from Erica. Um, this next one really didn't start out as a question. It's more the expert counsel to the rescue. Uh, I'll let Steve tell the story, what happened, and how the numbers worked out. But I got an email from someone who basically had just signed on to have very expensive solar array put on their home. I uh, told it was a quick payback, and it was not. I Pushed that email over to Stephen Harris. Steve went into action, and apparently he had the guy that, that emailed me had enough time to get out of the deal. He's done so. So Steve has uh, kind of brought this all together for us so we can prevent this from happening to other people, what was really going on here. And uh, John Pugliano then has some additional thoughts on the end financially. And I want to throw it out to Steve here. Steve got in touch with John and said, John, I think it would be great for you to take a financial analysis of this in addition to what I've brought out uh, at the beginning. So this all was done by these two council members to help one listener uh, get out of a very expensive mistake, and then they put it all together so that you would not be in jeopardy of having that same mistake made uh, on your end. and So that you could analyze things, not just solar panels, but think just about anything that you're being presented by someone that's selling something that seems too good to be true. Here we go, guys. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. Well, people say all the time, Steve Harris hates solar energy. I hate it. No, I don't hate solar. I hate what it does to people and their thinking. It can be one of the worst forms of mind pollution there is. You have to understand it and its application before it can be financially or preparedness relevant to what you're doing. A gentleman by the name of Jace from Wyoming sent Jack a bunch of documents that he had on installing a solar system on his house from some solar crooks. And Jack sent them to me right away and said, you better call this guy. And this is on a solar energy home power system. Well, I read all the documents and I called them right away. 1-800-SOLAR-USA wants him to spend $48 friggin' thousand dollars on a six kilowatt grid tie system to power his house. $48,000. Right in the document, the solar crooks factor in his natural gas bill as a cost savings. Your electric system has nothing to do with your winter natural gas heating bill. And no, you're not going to use solar panels to heat your house with electric heaters. I'm not even going to address that insanity. So they're using funny money and numbers right here to screw you. Right in the document I was sent, the solar crooks, 
say that he has $17,000 in tax deductions, so his real cost is $31,000 and not $48,000. But funny, in the document, the construction loan is still for, yeah, $48,000. That's what he has to shell out to in the form of a loan to buy this. If you have $100,000 in income, and you have $10,000 to deduct from your taxes, and you're in a 28% tax bracket, you're saving $2,800, not $10,000, you solar crooks. What morons. Right in the document, it says, the contractor has no control over when the utility will hook up to your home solar system to the grid so you can net meter and sell electricity back to the utility. So their savings are totally based upon their electric bill and not selling renewable energy back to the electric grid. You think if you they were de- working with you in that state, they would know the laws for that state regarding net metering and they'd be able to factor that into your bill as a return on investment. Some places like Socialist California will pay you extraordinary amounts of money for your solar electricity, renewable energy, which is money they stole from the taxpayer so they can give to you for putting solar energy on the grid. But that's a rarity. Now, get this. The electric bill. I have a copy of his exact bill sent to me by Jack. Not only is he in a 12 cent per kilowatt hour billing area, which is pretty cheap compared to the communist theft of an electric bill in California, which can be 24 to 30 cents a kilowatt hour, but right in Jace's electric bill from his Wyoming utility, it says his average daily cost of electricity is $4.87 per day. So, as the church lady would say, you want to spend $48,000 to negate a $4.87 a day bill. Hmm, who's the fool here now? The devil. So, how long does it take for return on investment for $48,000 when you're spending $4.87 per day? The answer is 27.3 years. That's your return on investment. That is if you have 0% interest on your construction loan, which you won't get. So figure it's like a mortgage, and it'll take over 40 years for return on investment. No, you probably have to pay it back in 15 to 20 years, but it's going to take you 40 years to get return on investment. But that is also you getting 0% interest on the forty-eight to $50,000 you just spent. Now, John Pugliano is coming on right after me. I've teamed up with him to give you two experts on this answer because it really needs both of us. He will tell you that $50,000 invested at an average rate of return of 6% will double your money every 15 years. So after 15 years, you have $100,000, and after another 15 years or 30 years, you have $200,000. So what the hell do you want to do? Spend $48,000 to get your money back in 40 years, or pay your electric bill and spend $48,000 and get $200,000 in return on investment in 30 years? 
Just how many electric bills will $200,000 pay for at a rate of $4.87 per day? Also, they say they are going to install a 6-kilowatt solar system. Well, that is 6 kilowatt from the panels at noon in Arizona in July with the panels pointed directly at the sun on two axes, X and Y, and not on a slant on a roof in Wyoming at the top of the United States, just south of Montana. Plus, this is a grid tie system. It is tied directly into the home electrical system and into the power grid. There are no batteries. So for your preparedness, when the power grid fails, your six kilowatts of solar panels on a sunny day will give you friggin' nothing. Zero energy from your solar panels for your house in a power failure with a grid tie system. And no, it is not a simple thing to add batteries to a grid tie system. Either you're a renewable energy system with batteries or your grid tie system and the twain shall not meet. Also, Right in the signed agreement, it says you will provide the names and phone numbers of your relatives, friends, and neighbors. So 1-800-SOLAR-CROOKS-USA can contact them. John Pugliano will talk about this after me, but this is a multi-level marketing scheme done by these solar crooks. Jace was able to back out of his agreement. He sent a letter to the crooks through the company by courier just to be safe so he did not get suckered into this solar claptrap. Unless you have a good three months of food and water put away in your house, in storage, you have no business owning one thing solar energy, not even a solar panel for your cell phone. Your money is better spent on food and water first and other needed items like medical supplies. Your car that is already owned and paid for can easily power your house for a good two-plus months if you have gasoline stored. And there's one other good reason for solar. When you have an off-grid location where it will cost a tremendous amount of money to put electric poles in from the grid to your home or they're not available at all. In this case, solar is about your only option along with a generator. I just helped a guy this week with a configuration for his off-grid home, and it worked out pretty good. If you want to learn how to store gasoline, how to power your house from your car, and about seven other fabulous things from me, from Stephen Harris, then please go to www.steven.com. S-T-E-V-E-N, 1234.com, and it's all there for you for free. If there's one thing you can bet on, I got your back. Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. This is John Pugliano, and let me pile on to what Steve is saying about being cautious, about making a major investment, like installing solar panels. And for those of you that aren't necessarily interested in solar panels, what Steve and I are talking about is still very relevant because the same critical thinking skills apply no matter what type of investment or large type of purchase you may be making. So the first thing I want to talk about is the Rule of 72. Some people call it the Law of 72. And this is a simple tool that you can use to estimate how long and at what interest rate is required for your money to double. 
So this is a fantastic way for you to get a quick back of the envelope, you know, ballpark estimate when you're assessing some type of a payback period or if you're trying to get an idea of alternative returns on investment. This is something that you don't have to have a spreadsheet for or a financial calculator. It's just a calculation you can do in your head, and I found it to be an extremely effective tool. So here's here's how it works. You take the number 72, and if you want to know what type of interest rate would be required to double your money in five years, then you divide 72 by 5. That's 14.4, so it would take a return on your money of 14.4% to double your money in five years. Well, what if you wanted to double your money in 10 years? Again, take 72, divide it by 10. Well, it would require an interest rate of 7.2%. You want to double your money in 20 years? Well, you need an interest rate of 3.6%. It works the other way as well. Let's say that you're receiving a 5% interest rate and you want to know how long it'll take to double your money. Well, take 72, divide it by 5. Again, you get 14.4. It will take you approximately 14.4 years to double your money at a 5% interest rate. Right now, 10-year treasury bonds are paying about 2.25% interest. So take 72, divide that by 2.25, and you come up with 32. It would take you 32 years to double your money if you invested in 10-year treasuries right now. So if someone's telling you they have this absolutely 100% safe and sh- uh, sure investment that there's no way it can fail and you can double your money in two years, well, think about what I just said. Right now, the safest investment you can make would be considered investing in U.S. Treasuries, and it's going to take you 32 years to double your money if you buy 10-year government bonds. So if someone is promising to double your money in two years and they're telling you it's a safe investment, well, that doesn't jive with reality, does it? So use this rule of 72 to help you estimate rates of return and number of years for payback on your investments. Now, the next thing that applies in particular to solar panel installations, but again, it's a general investment strategy or pitfall that you want to avoid, and that's technological obsolescence. You know, when new technologies come out, uh, the people that use those, we call them early adopters. A lot of people like to invest in new and emerging technologies. But, you know, in the investment side, we also call that the bleeding edge of technology because there are so many failures and because technology changes at such a rapid pace. What's in vogue today or what works today may be obsolete in two or three years. Now, this is particularly important with solar panel installations because you're going to be paying for these well out into the future for 20, 30, maybe as much as 40 years. Think about the technological advances that can occur over a 20 or 30 year period. Sure, perhaps the panels that you buy today may still be functioning and working in 20 years, but will they be comparatively and competitively efficient with modern solar panels? They're going to be offered in the year, you know, 2036 is only 20 years. From now. In 1954, when my dad bought a new car, it got gas mileage of only about eight miles per gallon. The last time I was down at Jack's place, I rented a Prius, and on my trip, I averaged about 48 miles per gallon. Don't you think that there's a high likelihood that there will be energy alternatives and better methods of using and creating power in the year 2036 than what we have today? Think about how technology changes. When I bought my first cell phone in 1990, it wasn't called a a mobile phone or a cell phone. It was called a car phone. And that's because it was as big as a brick and it was hardwired into the car. Non-roaming charges cost me something like 25 cents a minute. And if I was roaming, the price shot up and was astronomical. Think of how things have changed in the world of cell phones and telecommunications just over the past 25 years. 
Changes in the energy sector and, and solar technology are no different. Look at the way the price of solar panels has come down just in the last three years. And look at the cost of energy. Do you know that since 2008, the United States has doubled its oil production capacity? We're pumping over 9 million barrels a day, which puts us on scale with Saudi Arabia. Well, that was unheard of if you go back prior to 2008 when everybody was worried about peak oil. Technological obsolescence is occurring at a historically unprecedented rate. If anything, it's going to accelerate in the coming years, not decelerate. So if you're investing in solar panels now and you're spending twenty or $40,000 for a technology that you plan on using 20 or 30 years into the future, just stop and consider the fact that even if it is technically functional, it's likely to be replaced and made obsolete by better technology that's going to come out over the next five or 10 years. Now, something else that I don't like about the solar panel industry, and this is just something that I'm going to tell you from anecdotally, from stories I've heard from people, and that's the multi-level marketing aspect of the way many of these companies are selling their panels. Now, I'm not saying that this is a Ponzi scheme or anything like that, but I am saying that from the stories I've heard, it does smell to me, or should I say, has the stench of like an MLM scamology. Go online, look at some of the sales literature or some of the other type of headlines that are that are put out by this industry, and you'll see some things that I would think are pretty questionable. I'll just give you a rundown here of a couple quotes that I saw when I did a quick Google search. How to sell solar to your neighbors. Solar network marketing business opportunity. Top MLM energy companies. Which one is best for you? You get compensated when you enroll someone in the business. There's also a considerable opportunity for those who join early. We found that if someone answered the door, then people enjoy receiving a free solar assessment. Here's a testimonial that says that 9 out of 10 people I meet want to learn more about solar panels. And then finally, my all-time favorite, there's a company saying that uh, through solar panels, they're going to facilitate the largest transfer of wealth in history. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a big transfer of wealth. I'm just not sure that the person that buys the solar panels is the one that's receiving that wealth. Now, finally, I want to wrap up by mentioning solar bonds, and that's the subprime loans that most people end up using to finance the installation of these solar panels. I'm going to include a link to fortune.com that Jack can share with you. And in this article, they point out that back in August, Solar City had $202 million worth of solar debt outstanding. And that of that $202 million, roughly $165 million of that debt had been purchased by its sister company, SpaceX. Now, both of these companies are owned by Elon Musk. He's also the guy that owns Tesla. I'm not saying that this balance sheet engineering is illegal or it's a swindle, but it sure sounds really incestuous to me. Think about it. If these solar bonds, this basically subprime loans that are required to get people to invest in solar panels, if there's such a good investment opportunity, then why isn't someone like Goldman Sachs buying them? Think about that. I mean, Goldman Sachs, even if they didn't think that it was a viable investment for themselves, surely they wouldn't be above the fact of bundling these together in, in high-yield bonds and then spinning them off and selling them to some other sucker. Doesn't that sound exactly like what happened with subprime housing loans? Except in this case, these bonds must be so bad that Solar City can't bundle them up to anybody other than their own sister company. It just smells fishy to me. 
Now, I don't have time to go into the ramifications of how the changing tax codes and the subsidies for solar energy, how that is all likely to change over the next 20 years, but that's certainly something you have to take into consideration. I'll just finish up by saying that I think the market is also skeptical about these solar companies. Everybody's heard about the bankruptcy of of companies like Solyndra, but even now that we're close to a decade of, of this industry being highly subsidized, look at the companies that are publicly traded. First Solar right now is down over 80% from its all-time high. Solar City down over 50%. And Sun Edison, which just this year bought one of its competitors, Vivint, well, they're down over 90% from the high that they hit back in like 2007. So I think it's a questionable industry. I certainly don't have any plans in the immediate future to put solar panels on my roof. Well, I'm out of time. Uh, Jack and Steve, thanks for the opportunity to piggyback and answer Jace's question on financing solar panels. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. I think at one point in there, John might have said $2 million. It meant $2 billion or something like that, but uh, we won't uh, trip up over that. Um, little side note there before I bring our next guest on. I, I think people should give people a little leeway with things like that. Um, when it comes to podcasting and media and what have you, uh, I've done thousands of hours uh, of podcasting at this point, and I've done hundreds of hours of public presentations. And there's there's been plenty of times where I've said something and meant something else. And as long as I think that the people I'm talking to are switched on enough to know what I meant, I usually don't back up and stumble over it and re-explain it. Um, But, yeah, there's always people out there that you'll hear from that are like, a month ago you said this, and that was wrong. If you're one of those people, well, I can't help you. Anyway, let's go on from there. Uh, next question is for Paul Wheaton. Uh, first, just let me say, how about that, guys? John and John and Steve to the rescue on that one and, and, and putting it together so eloquently. And hearing Harris get pissed off for once in a really, really proactive way is awesome, too, isn't it? Um, great stuff, and thank you to both of those guys because they did that really all on their own. I did not ask them to even do that as a segment for the show. I just asked Steve to get in touch with the guy and say, you know, save him from making a huge financial mistake. So there you go. Um, next one is Paul Wheaton, Duke of Permaculture. We haven't heard from him for a while. Just want an update on what's going on in the wilds of Man- Montana and the uh, in the the very world infamous Wheaton Laboratories. Paul, what's going on up there in the world of Paul Wheaton's permaculture empire? Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from permies.com with another report of what all's going on at Wheaton Laboratories. Um, we have ice, Jack. <laughs> It is Montana, <laughs> but. Uh, Uh, and then, in fact, just walking out to the office today, it's it's that kind of water on top of ice, so it's extra extra slippery. Um, and and I got to share a couple of quick tips uh, that are a little bit more permaculture esque, I suppose. Uh, one is is that uh, to give a little bit of traction, we just throw down a little cornmeal. Uh, we have uh, a bunch of wild turkeys here, and then eventually the wild turkeys will come out, and then they will peck and scratch at that cornmeal, uh, thus you know generally removing any ice that might be around. Um, another great tip is uh, to use conifer branches. This is apparently something that they do frequently in Finland, uh, especially good for any muddy paths uh, to lay down a bunch of conifer branches. Um, we uh, uh, Other news, we replaced the teepee. Uh, so we got a teepee up on the lab with rocket mass heater in it. Uh, 
I could, I would love to talk for an hour about that. But uh, the thing is, is that uh, we bought the TP used, and in time the canvas rotted. So now we've got a brand new TP up there uh, to protect the the rocket mass heater. Um, uh, there's another structure done. So we have this project going on that we call Ant Village, and uh, we have eight ants, and each ant has an acre on which to uh, build uh, a shelter and their food systems. Uh, and, to, and to see, you know, you discover whether or not you're an ant or a grasshopper. So uh, the second structure is complete. Uh, so so Jesse did that. The great thing is, is that uh, Jesse built a video series showing what he did. Uh, so this is a log structure that he built using logs off of the land. He says that he spent less than $500 building it. So it might be worth uh, folks checking it out. I, th- I think it's an awesome series. I love the way he narrates it. Um. We woke up one morning to find a dead turkey at our doorsteps. We have, I don't know, like about a hundred wild turkeys here at base camp, just kind of circling base camp all the time. And we were a little bit baffled. Why is there a dead turkey here? And then a few days later, it all added up. So as you know, uh, this is the Rocky Mountains and you were here and uh, I own a chunk of a mountain. Uh, I, you could even say I own my own mountain, uh, the hollowed out volcano with good submarine access. Um, and so the turkeys have some spots they love to nest in uphill of us. And so I think what they do is in the mornings at dawn, is that they leap out of the trees and sail over the house and into a field nearby. And uh, uh, we have a bit of fence set up, and and they collided. This one must have collided into the fence. Uh, there's even some of the turkeys, I'm seeing them hitting some power lines and stuff as they're sailing, doing their morning sail into that field. So uh, that's how we had a dead turkey at our doorstep one morning. Um one of the, the biggest things we've, we've had going on this week is that uh, 10,000 decks of permaculture playing cards arrived. So I shelled out a small mountain of cash in the hopes. And this time I'm trying to sell them for really, really cheap, which means that I've got to pretty much sell all of them in order to be able to get my, my money back. Um, and, of course, Jack, you know, on that one card, your name is still hidden on that card. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's, it's a Jack product sort of kind of a little bit, maybe, <laughs> um, the big issue that I'm having with this whole thing is that when I, when I made the cards, I thought I was being really clever in that, uh, you can't really pirate cards. I mean, so many, so many books and DVDs are being pirated all the time on the internet. And I thought, well, hard to play cards, you know, if you pirate the cards, however, the subcontractor for our printer has gone into the business of competing with us. They just kept all the images from our cards, and they're competing with us. And so uh, we're not immune to piracy. Um, and it's it's like not only are they – but it's like uh, they, they're putting advertisement for their printing company inside the deck of cards. So for any anybody who's bought a deck of cards uh, from Amazon or eBay or wherever they're being sold, and you have this – advertisement for a printer inside the cards, you know that you've bought the pirated cards. So it's just uh, shenanigans are everywhere. Um, anyway, this is a guy in Texas, Jack. So uh, so this time I went to a whole different printer to try and avoid that guy. And hopefully this time this printer won't also go into business to compete with us. But 
the permaculture playing cards are out. I got 10,000 decks. We've already sold 3,000. So, um, you know, I guess it's, a, you know, because it's a stocking stuffer. You can infect brains of others, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, an experiment that we're doing here at Wheaton Labs is that we got uh, a great big bird feeder, and we put in the bird feed, and we mixed in a bunch of black locust seed. Kind of wondering if by doing this, if we'll just start seeing a lot of black locusts popping up all around. Uh, most of the birds have gone south for the winter, uh, but there are a few birds around, but they haven't <laughs> seemed to find this bird feeder yet. So, um, here, birdie, 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 come eat the feed! So, um, uh, black locust seed needs a little bit of scarification, uh, uh, in order to be, to get good germination. I mean, we were finding that we're getting like 10, 20% germination without any scarification. But, uh, and of course, scarification is emulating passing through a particular animal. And so we're just hoping that, well, we just put it in the bird feeder. Maybe some of the, uh, the birds will be just the right kind of, uh, bird to, to pass through. Now, of course, black locust seed is extremely hard. So, uh, I'm kind of thinking like it'll probably pass through most of the little tiny birds and it is a little tiny seed. Uh, winter is that time of year to mill lumber. And, uh, we got, uh, a lumber shed almost on, on skids. So we built a lot of these structures on skids. Uh, Kai is up there, uh, right now. Uh, he's got something almost done. He's putting the roof on it. And so, uh, it'll, it'll have a 12 foot long by, uh, 8 foot platform where we can, uh, stack the lumber that we've cut from our lumber mill, um, and, and keep it dry while at the same time air can pass through. Um, it's, uh, got a fixed roof. We've got some designs for, uh, lumber sheds where, uh, it's got a variable roof, uh, which I think will be a better design, um, but we'll do that later. Uh, we've got bounties out for that. Um, uh, all of our skittable structures that we have here, we're doing a lot of roundwood stuff. So it's like, rather than using milled lumber, uh, which is a bit, you know, more processed, like, can we go out and, and, uh, you know, chop down what we call junk pole? Uh, just a, you know, because we got oodles and oodles of trees. We got too many trees and they're kind of a fire hazard unless you thin them out. So we're trying to use more and more of that junk pole for different projects. So then our skittable structures are using that. Um, and we've got the, the whole mortise and tenon thing going on. This is the first time we're using the mortise and tenon tools to make a skittable structure. We'll see how that goes. Um, We've got the winter bounties getting posted. Uh, we've got uh, uh, several structures that people can stay in through if they were to come out. Um, and uh, we have projects for which we will pay to have them created. Uh, as you know, Jack, we're trying to create more of a community than just me go out and build everything. So uh, we're getting more and more people that come through. And and, uh, and some of them are loving to build things. Some of them need the income. Some of them, you know, have each person has a different story on what is their thing for being here. So we've got a bunch of people that, that come and, and uh, they'll stay and they'll build a few things and pick up some coin. Uh, granted, the coin is not massive, but uh, we've, we've had some people who've come out here and they've made like 25 bucks an hour and we've had some people come out here and they're learning how to build things and they walk away with something more like $4 an hour and it's like, no, you just work at your own pace, whatever is your thing and it's it's your choice whether it's a learning experience or or whether you've got lots of skill. Uh, building new paddocks and fence, um, 
We have a uh, uh, base camp is a big rock, so uh, you can't put fence posts in any time of the year. So uh, uh, fences are built using uh, what we call rock jacks. This is something that is very common uh, where I'm from. Uh, um, in, in fact, when I tried to research on the Internet, I could only find rock jacks in Wallach County uh, in, in Oregon. Um, but we call them rock jacks. Maybe they just are called something else in other places. But we have a, a system where you uh, set your fence post right on the ground, and then you kind of make angle braces and a little platform, and then you stack rocks on it. And it makes for a nice uh, uh, fence post um, held in place by the weight of the rocks. Uh, insulate the red cabin. Uh, we've got a couple of rocket mass heater cores that need to be built. Uh, we've got an electric tractor that needs an overhaul. Um, uh, and then, of course, more skittable woodsheds. Oh, and J- uh, Jack, I'm following your advice. Years ago, you told me that the thing I need to do is to set up something like the Member Support Brigade, MSB. And so uh, I've, I've got a, a TLA also that for this, and it's almost done. The implementation seems to be complete. We're just testing it now. It seems to be working fine. Hopefully, in a couple of days, we'll <laughs> go full-time with it. But instead of MSB... It's P-I-E, Permaculture Inner Circle Elite. <laughs> Thanks for the advice, Jack. We'll see how it works. I'm hoping it'll be as awesome as you've told me. Um, that's it. Thanks, Jack. Well, that's some really good stuff. I have two things to throw in there on, on the fencing. Obviously, Paul needs bigger fencing to handle some of the animals he'll be dealing with than I do to deal with a duck. I can make a fence now. Wherever I need a cross fence, I just use center blocks, some sacrete, and a three-foot high T-post. And then I use three-foot high, you know, horse-style fencing. I don't know what you call it. And a horse ain't going to get fenced in by three feet, but it looks like little horse fencing from Redbrand. That works fine for me. Rock jacks are cool. Another quick way to build fencing posts um, using rocks is you get just a big uh, thing of, like, horse fencing. And you bake it into a circle. And you set it where you want it, and you just fill it up with rocks. And when that thing's full of rocks, they ain't going nowhere. So that's another way you can put fencing in when you're dealing with rock situations. Paul and I have, at least in some areas, have that in common that we have to deal with rock. Paul has a lot of places he doesn't have to deal with rock. I have no place I don't have to deal with rock. But locust trees. So we're planting a bunch of locust trees. And I have to say, depending on the size of your property, that when you can buy a two-foot to three-foot size locust seedling for less than 80 cents it makes a lot of sense to go with seedlings when you got over 100 acres you plant and you want to put lots of locusts in that even gets kind of expensive so seeds really is a way to go um and on on the scarification there's a very simple way that will get you almost 100 percent germination hopefully paul's listening to this with your black locusts but you wouldn't be planting them now you would be planting them in spring because you're 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 getting them ready to go. And if they sit out there in the cold after you do this to them, I don't know exactly what's going to happen through your winter. This would be something you'd wait till spring to do. And what you do is you take all your black locust seeds, put them in a jar, like a ball jar, something that won't break when it gets really hot. You boil some water in a pot. When the water starts boiling, you take it off, let it go below boil, let give it I don't know a minute, dump it on your locust seeds. That's it. Leave them overnight. The next day, all the ones that are swollen up, take them out, put them on something like a piece of paper towel, and uh, set that in a place where it's going to stay damp and somewhat warm. 
And all of a sudden, and within a day or two, maybe three, you'll start to see little tiny rootlets sticking out. And go ahead and plant them. That way you know you got a 100% viable seed that you're planting, or just plant them once they're swelled up, because I know Paul worries the rootlet's going to get damaged or whatever. And the ones that aren't swelled up, leave them in the jar, drain the water off them, and repeat the process. And you'll find, after doing it twice, like 90% of them will have swollen, and the ones that don't are just not good seed. And of the ones that swell, if you actually do the paper towel thing and count your germination as a test you'll get about 100% germination with that very simple technique. So two things I thought I'd add to what Paul had there. Uh, next one I have John Pugliano's back up uh, to bat once again, because uh, I didn't want to count that as his main response. I know uh, Steve asked him to kind of to, to step in and, and, and step up and pinch in on that one. Uh, this one is about, uh, this one is from Ted. Ted says, would you recommend maxing out my health savings account contribution limits and a highly deductible medical plan each year, even though I may not use this amount entirely for each year's medical costs. Health insurance and HSAs and all that stuff is really a confusing world right now. I think it's designed to be. I think we're on the way to a government full takeover of health care. I think that's what the Affordable Care Act was designed to do. But we have to deal with what we have for now. Um, John, what say you on this one? Hello, TSP listeners. Let's see if I can answer Ted's question about health savings accounts. He wants to know if I would recommend maxing out his HSA, even though he may not use the entire amount for each year's medical costs. Well, let's break down that question. And, and before we do, let's review a little bit of terminology here. Ted is asking about an HSA, health savings account, and many people confuse that with an FSA, which is a flexible spending account. Let me briefly tell you the difference between the two. The FSA allows you to put away money pre-tax. These are things that are usually offered by your employer, but just about everybody's eligible for them. You could set one up for yourself, I believe, if you're self-employed or even if your employer doesn't offer it. You can generally put away about $2,500 a year, maybe a little bit more, and that money can be used for medical expenses during that calendar year. And that sounds good because it's pre-tax. And if you have a reoccurring illness, uh, for example, let's say you have diabetes and you know that every month you have a certain out-of-pocket expense to buy your insulin and your needles and your other items you may need, or maybe your children have asthma. And so you know that every month there's this reoccurring prescription that you have to fill that is out-of-pocket expense to you. It's not covered by your insurance company. Well, if you have that type of reoccurring health expense or if you know that in a particular year you need to have some type of medical work done, like maybe some elective surgery that you're putting off until next year or whatever, well, then it would make sense to have the FSA, the Flexible Spending Account, the problem that I have with that is that any money that you don't use, you lose. And so if you put away $1,000 for 2015 and, you know, here we are into December and you haven't spent that money, well, come December 31st, if you haven't spent that $1,000 that you contributed to your FSA, well, you lose it. And so that's why I really don't like that type of account. Now, fortunately, myself and my family, we've been healthy. We haven't had any type of reoccurring maintenance health costs that we knew that we had to spend every year. So that's why I've avoided them. And again, I just really don't like that use it or lose it clause. Now, what's different about the HSA is that whatever money you don't use does get rolled over. However, this is only for people that have high deductible health plans. So if you're on a type of catastrophic health insurance, 
where, for example, uh, for a family, your deductible was over $2,600, well, then you could qualify for a health savings account. And what that would mean is that as a family, you could put away up to $6,750 each year. And then whatever you don't use for qualified medical expenses, well, that money rolls over to the next year. In effect, you can think of these as sort of like a medical IRA because you can put money in either pre-tax or after-tax. And then as long as you use it for a qualified, unreimbursed medical expense, that money can be withdrawn tax-free, penalty-free. Whatever you don't use rolls over to the next year. And the theory of this is is this as you get older, your medical expenses are obviously going to become more. And so you can use this to pay for your medical expenses in your old age. Or if you die, you can actually pass that money on to your heirs in a similar way that you could with an IRA or a Roth. So for these reasons, I really like HSAs. If you qualify for one, you should at least look into it, and it wouldn't be a bad idea that you contribute at least some amount of money to that. Now, as far as Ted's specific question, he's asking if he should max it out, even though he's not going to use the entire um, amount for that particular year. And, you know, since you can roll it over, I wouldn't worry about contributing more to an HSA than I plan to to use for that particular year. In fact, that would be the incentive of why I would contribute more. I'll give you a quick example of my own personal life. So in my working career, I've spent about seven years in the military where I was covered with, you know, medical insurance through the military. And then I spent about 23 years in the corporate world where I had really good medical insurance. So all told, over the first 30 years of my working career, I had really good coverage, but I was also very healthy and never really needed that coverage, even though all that money was paid to insurance companies. Well, now here I am, I'm approaching 55 years old. Fortunately, I'm still in good health, but because of my age and because of the rising premiums from things like the Affordable Care Act, so I now find myself in my mid-50s. I have high out-of-pocket expenses, and going forward, I can only assume that my health is going to get worse and I'm going to have higher medical costs. But because for 30 years when I was healthy, I had traditional insurance, I unfortunately don't have any money put away in an HSA. If that was available to me when I was younger, I could have been setting aside money in that HSA, even if it wasn't maxing out the uh, total amount that I was allowed, and that could have been building and growing and accumulating just like an IRA over these past 30 years. So for younger people that qualify, that have high deductible health insurance, I would encourage them to look into the HSA. Um, now, again, getting to Ted's question about should he max it out, Well, that really depends on your particular financial situation. I don't know if you really want to commit the full $6,750. I know that you're contributing to your 401k plan at work to the extent that your your employer is matching it, and I know you're putting some money away in your IRA as, as well. But it's really that balance that you have to look at as you do your family budget. How much are you putting away for your retirement? And I would tell you that you need to be putting away at least 10% in your retirement. So whether that's through your 401k or a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, bottom line, you should be putting at least 10% away. If you really want to focus on building your wealth for, for when you're older and going into retirement, then I would encourage you to put upwards of 20% away. But that's a personal decision that you need to make. But once you have at least that 10% that you're putting away for your retirement, if you want to contribute additional money into your HSA, you know, up to that $6,750 limit, then I think that would be a good place to to put your money. Again, it's going to grow tax-free. It is readily available to you uh, and your family should you have medical expenses that are not covered by your insurance. 
And then it's also something that's going to roll over. It's going to be with you in your old age when you're most likely going to need it. Should you die without spending it, you can pass it on to your heirs. So I think those are all good reasons to have the HSA. I would also remind you, though, that even with something like an IRA or a Roth, you can take certain qualified deductions out of those type retirement accounts to pay for qualified medical expenses. So in a way, there's sort of an HSA built into the IRA system. Uh, Those rules change, and I'm not a tax expert, so I don't keep up on them. But generally, health expenses that exceed 7.5% of your adjusted gross income would be eligible for a penalty-free withdrawal from your IRA. So that's just something to think about. Ted, thanks for your question. I definitely encourage you to look at that HSA. Make sure that you're funding your retirement savings first, and then if you have that extra money, go ahead and contribute that to the HSA. As always, though, make sure that that's being held at a reputable custodian and that you're investing that money safely so that it's there when you need it. If you'd like to hear more about my stock market commentary or about my thoughts on general wealth building principles, please check out the Wealth Steading Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff from John Pugliano there. Um, we're going to go on to another one. It's going to sound a little bit like John's, even though it's from a person you wouldn't really think of as being a person to talk about insurance. Uh, but this is from Darby Simpson, of course, is a full-time farmer that specializes in pastured pork, beef, and poultry. He generally answers a lot of questions on farming. And this question is sort of on farming, but it's really more on insurance. And the question comes in from, let's see, doesn't say, oh, Jim. And what Jim basically has is a question on homeowner's insurance for a small homestead kind of farmstead situation. And this is actually a really important question because on the new regenerative agriculture page on Facebook, we're seeing all kinds of concerns and questions about do I need insurance, how do I insure myself, and a lot of it has to do with how you talk to insurance companies because their whole goal is to write a policy that they never have to pay on. And what they try to do is angle you in some funky ways once in a while, and it's important to use certain words uh, and not use certain words. For instance, when we started Permit Ethos and we were trying to get insurance, uh, people, the, the insurance companies would ask what we did, and we said we, we, did, we provided training, consultation, and assistance in establishing permaculture farms. It was like trying to beat your head through a cinder block wall to get an underwriter to write an insurance policy. So we just changed it to farms and left permaculture out. Problem went away. So with that in mind, Darby, what say you on homeowners insurance for small homesteads and for small agricultural concerns? Hey Jack, this is Darby Simpson calling in to answer Jim's question about how to find the right insurance company since he is eventually going to want to engage in a farming business. And Jim, I'm uh, really happy to hear that you're thinking about this now and trying to get this lined up in advance. I'm a huge advocate of having liability insurance if you're engaged in any kind of a farming enterprise where you're selling products. So kudos to you for uh, being forward thinking and uh, figuring out uh, you know, well in advance who you're going to be working with um, before you have your farm enterprise started. Um, so it sounds like you've talked with your existing insurance company and they've, they've basically said if you engage in any kind of farm or agricultural business, they're not going to insure you. And, um, you've, you've checked with some other independent insurance brokers and, uh, kind of been asked the same question and, and, and told the same thing. Um, 
I, I tell you what you really need to do is to continue uh, calling some independent insurance brokers and specifically uh, try to find some that, that deal with farms. And usually independent brokers who deal with farms, they're going to have like three or four insurance companies that will insure you. Um, if you're having a hard time finding an independent broker that does that, call some farms in your area. Just cold call them. And just tell them that you're moving into the area and you're going to have 10 acres and you're going to be doing a little bit of farming and selling some stuff. And you'd just like to know who it is they're insured through or who their independent insurance broker is. And just network and get some uh, names and phone numbers and, and make some calls. Uh, or even go to the local farmer's market and uh, ask some of the people who are selling there who they uh, are using uh, for insurance for their, their farm business. Um, I can tell you that in the past we have used Farm Bureau and I'm not a huge advocate of Farm Bureau for many reasons but they did fill a need for us for many years and um, actually at least in, in Indiana with Farm Bureau you can buy a standalone policy. You don't even have to have the rest of your insurance with them but you can purchase a standalone liability policy um, which is required by a lot of farmers markets that we sell at, uh, where you have to not only insure yourself, but you have to insure the farmers market, and sometimes you have to insure the property owner uh, for for liability purposes in case you sell someone something and they they eat it and and claim that you made them ill and sue you. It protects you and protects the venue and protects the farmers market entity. Um, they, you know, it's a pretty reasonable product they sell. It's about 350 bucks, 400 bucks a year. It might be different in Washington State. I don't know, but I think that's one option for you. Who we're currently using, I, I don't know if they sell insurance that far west, but it's Everett Cash Mutual. Uh, they have been excellent to work with. They saved us a boatload of money. We increased all of our um, uh, insurance limits, added some coverages, and, uh, you know, they still saved us money on a monthly basis. So we're really happy with them. And it's a very, very similar thing. A lot of these policies are going to uh, have uh, $2 million of coverage. And what that typically gets you will be uh, two instances per year of $1 million each uh, for liability uh, coverage purposes for your your farm business. So that's the the best thing I can tell you is to again try and network and ask some farmers or people selling at a farmers market, you know, who they're using, but most likely you're going to find it through an uh, independent insurance broker and he's going to have more than one option for you. There's usually three or four companies that'll be uh, you know, fighting to earn your business. And I would definitely encourage you once you uh, you know, start getting some quotes to, to get quotes from multiple uh, different independent brokers. They might even be quoting the same insurance companies, uh, but I will tell you from experience, there is a uh, a big difference in the, the rates that those agents pass along to you. So that would be my advice there. Um, I've got a blog article I actually wrote some time ago. I'm not even sure how long ago it's been now, but uh, I'll provide a, a link for the show notes today. You can you can go out and read that. And it's actually a two-part article about protecting yourself legally. And and one of the the two articles is specifically on liability insurance. So for anybody out there listening to this, um, uh, that's going to be engaging in a farming enterprise where you're selling stuff. If there's cash exchanging hands. 
you need to insure yourself and protect yourself with a very simple, inexpensive liability policy. I would go so far as to say that that is a reason uh, to not be engaged in a for-profit farming enterprise if you're not willing to purchase that liability policy. It's just nuts to not have that in a litigation-happy society. Uh, that we live in. So again, we'll pro- provide a link in today's show notes for that and you can go out and read that and hopefully, uh, this advice helps you get connected with an independent insurance agent that is, uh, happy to take your money and earn your business and get you all set up for your, uh, future, uh, farming enterprise. And Jim, wanna wish you luck and, uh, hope, hope everything turns out well for you and, uh, welcome to the team. Glad to see that you're going to be moving forward and, uh, trying to make a go of a, of a business there on your, your new homestead. Congratulations on getting the property. I'm sure it's a very exciting time for you. Uh, guys, to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at darbysimpson.com and you can find all kinds of, uh, free blog articles like I just mentioned about the liability insurance article um for free that you know you can just read on anything from uh you know how to with livestock to marketing uh business planning uh educational resources just all kinds of stuff out there you can you can tool around and look at and read uh for those of you who might want to go deeper I do offer one-on-one consultations uh there's a consultation tab on the website there you can pull that up and, and look at that and I want to take a moment and mention I'm actually doing a uh, consulta- consultation sale this month. So if you've been thinking about doing a consult as I'm going into my slow time of the year, this is a, a great time for me to do those. Uh, so to uh, just extend uh, a little invitation here to the TSP community, what I'm doing is uh, if you, you buy a two-hour consult, you're going to get a 20% discount. If you buy a... a, a a four hour consult, you're going to get a, a 25% discount. So you're, you're basically, you're getting, uh, with that, that second one there, you're getting an hour of my time free. So you can go out, sign up for one of those if you'd like to. I'm only going to do so many of these when they're sold out. They're sold out. They're gone. Uh, the only requirement is, uh, that we'll need to do this in the month of January or February. That's the only stipulation. And also, unfortunately, MSB members, no MSB discounts on, on top of this consultation sale. Uh, but if you are an MSB member and would like to just do a regular consult, you are uh, entitled to get a 10% discount. You can find that information in the members section of the TSP MSB information. Guys, thanks so much. Please continue sending in questions. I love answering them for you. Take care and have a great weekend. Okay, next up, kind of an interesting question sticking in the agriculture permaculture world for a bit here with Ben Falk. Ben, can you really build enough diversity into less than a tenth of an acre to properly deal with pests? This is from Jonathan in Utah. What say you, Ben? Hi, Jack and all. Ben Falk with Whole System Design. A uh, question about the avoiding all of the asides, like pesticides, uh, on a very small space. Well, it's impossible to answer this question, you know, with definitiveness, but one of the first questions I would have back to you is what's happening around you? You said, can you build enough diversity into less than a tenth of an acre to deal with pests? That's highly dependent on what's happening around your acreage. Are you surrounded by, you know, corn, bean, wasteland, or 
uh, suburban sprayed lawn wasteland or more of an urban paved wasteland? Or is it actually like a forested landscape or a place where neighbors are gardening and also harboring some diversity of, of living organisms that can balance each other out? Are uh, there water systems? Is there a range of types of ecosystems and, and ecotones where ecosystems meet? Uh, hopefully the answer is yes, there are. If there's not, you're going to have a much more difficult time and you'll have more imbalances and kind of spikes in populations of certain uh, species that will act as quote unquote pests in your garden. Um, we've been building a lot of diversity mostly on less than a few acres, even though our site, our original site is 10 acres. And I've seen, I've seen a huge, um, drop over the years in quote unquote pests. Um, I attribute them to our diversity, not just of plant species, but of animals. You know, we've been running ducks for, uh, seven, eight years now and, and geese for a few years and chickens on and off for almost 10 years. Um, but I think also bringing in a lot of the, um, of, of, uh, insect diversity via like aromatic pest confusers and, and, um, you know, a lot of flowering plants, the herbaceous perennials are big and I would, I would plant, drill in, uh, hundreds of herbaceous perennials if you can get them in plugs and just put them throughout the landscape. Um, we used to have Japanese beetles for a few years. They're basically gone now. I haven't seen any really of consequence in, in years now. And I know a lot of people do get them around here. We only had uh, potato bugs one year, this last year, actually. and never had them before. That's kind of interesting. We always move our plants, of course. Um, cabbage moth is kind of our most persistent pest besides for plum curculio on the plums. Um, but otherwise we have a lot less pests than it seems like a lot of people do around, but I guess that shouldn't be surprising. We have a lot more, di my, more diversity. So, but you want diversity for so many other reasons besides quote unquote pest control. So it's kind of a no brainer, um, to add to it. Um, but your context of course is super key as to what's around you. Um, so good luck. So adding to this, uh, for the, the person that wrote in. Um, there's a couple things that you can look at when it comes to controlling pests. First and foremost is the healthier your plants are, the less of a problem pests tend to be. So the one really great advantage on a tenth of an acre is you can build the best soil on planet Earth on that small of a footprint. And that would be the primary area that I would focus on is really high-quality, high-end soil building. Mulch and then cheap mulch and then mulch again and compost and uh, building up uh, the soil habitat and the soil diversity before I even worry about how much you know diversity I'm going to have. Because if you're going to permaculture a tenth of an acre, you're going to have diversity. It's going to happen. Uh, the next thing is, when it comes to diversity, Ben hit on it. It's about bringing in the predators. So the problem with being this, this oasis within a cityscape or a su suburb where your yard is just green and is beacon of hope is like what we did in Arkansas. We ended up being a beacon of hope to every deer on the mountain. Because when the whole mountain was dead in, in one of the worst droughts that we ever had up there, we were green. When the whole mountain was you know, pretty much into fall and, and there wasn't a good mass drop that year and everything had gone dormant, we still had all this greenery and this beauty and this, you know, and so it was like, bah! Well, unlike uh, a deer, 
almost every pest of your, 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 your plants in a tenth of an acre area is an insect pest. And it means that there's probably something that eats it. And the, the exceptions tend to be blister beetles, squash bugs, uh, and stink bugs. Those are the ones that it's really hard to, to end up with some sort of uh, something coming in and feeding on it. So we have to take other methods of control with them. But everything else, pretty much there's some other insect that eats it. So if you're creating this oh, beautiful, uh, gorgeous oasis of, of organic, you know, just gloriousness in the middle of a suburb, permaculture brilliance, Uh, not only do pests go, ah, oh, look, so do predators. And it is all about attra attracting as many predators as you can with that diversity. And that's hugely based on herbal plants that flower over long periods of time, like basil, like mints, like bergamot, or uh, another word for bergamot, of course, uh, is bee balm. These things that have lots of flowers, lots of diverse flowers, lots of attraction to well this is all like pollinators but many of your predatory wasps love that stuff because what they want to do they want to eat pollen and nectar and they want to find the evil little pest and they want to stab it and, and and basically paralyze it and take it home to the little nest and lay their eggs in it and have it eaten by their young that's so these predatory wasps generally don't do a lot of eating Uh, of, of, of other insects as an adult. They kill them, take them away, and feed their young with them. And then as adults, they, they are far more of a pollen and nectar consumer. So they need this, 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 this vast array. So what happens then is if you plant that, what you're saying is, I have the, the I, I, it's like a, it's like surf and turf, right? Or like, you know, like a, like a, a bar and grill. Come have your drink at the nectar bar and uh, take something home for the kids. And that's kind of the approach that you have to take there. It's not as easy as if you have 10 acres to really build massive diversity into. And it does have a lot to do with what's around you. I'll agree with Ben on that one. But no matter what, you can still do a lot to kind of build up kind of the fortress of predators. And that's really what it's all about. And remember, we can't wipe out the prey. If we wipe out every wildebeest and zebra and gemsbug and Thompson's gazelle... Uh, on the plains, there'll be no lions. There'll be no lions. So if we want lions, we have to have a plains game. If we want predators, there have to be some of the pests. Now, what we can do about the pests that don't have uh, generally predators, like your stink bugs, your squash bugs, uh, your blister beetles, is, is simple organic methods of pesticides, soap and water, Uh, soap, water, garlic, and pepper uh, is really, when I say pepper, I mean like cayenne, really a great general all-around repellent and insecticide. And what we need to not do is just spray that everywhere. What we need to do is look for the problem insects and spray them, pick them off, and deal with them mechanically and with low uh, persistence uh, methods of, of insecticide. Because that's not going to leave behind a residue that's really going to hurt anybody. Insecticidal soap is a contact killer, so you have to get it on the insect. So if we only attack what we see, we don't spray anybody else. And, I mean, you still have to be careful. I remember one time I was out spraying some evil squash bugs, and all of a sudden I, I look and I see this ladybug larva, which is like the, the, the epitome of an apex predator uh, for smaller insects, and it's like writhing around, and I had hit it with it, and I was like, oh, man, I killed that. I, it's only one bug, but I didn't want to do that, so be careful with that. Okay, so that kind of wraps that up. Let's go into our uh, next question. 
question, uh, which is for Tim Glantz on using tarps. Uh, Tim would be a guy to ask since he's been in the military, United States Army, for over 30 years. And if anybody's been around in the military that long knows something about tarps. So here you go. Tim, take it away. Hey, Jack, and everybody out there in TSP land. Uh, this is Tim Glantz with the Old Grouch's Military Surplus with an answer for Roy's question about what would I use to prevent canvas tarps. Uh, specifically, is there a formula of stuff, natural oils, etc., to coat new cotton canvas painter's cloth found at Harbor Freight? And he says he's building an inexpensive hoop house chicken coop from 2 by 4 and cattle panels with a canvas covering made from the painter's cloth. And uh, he wants to know what kind of stuff he can use to treat that cloth Uh, the military uses cloth treated from the factory, which is always going to yield a better result. And the reason for that is they do the cloth in very specialized machinery that ensures 100% saturation. So the first thing I'm going to say is if you're doing cloth, virgin cloth that has not been treated, anything you're going to do at home is not going to yield quite as good a result. I'm going to give you three options here. Number one is a product called Canvac. And I'm going to send a link to it for Jack. He can put it in there. It's C-A-N-V-A-K. Uh, you can get it at Cabela's, uh, several, several other places. It's not cheap, but if you want to do the best possible job, it will do it. Uh, it it's really good. You can also find it in marine supply stores. You're going to pay... Um, about $40 to $50 a gallon typically, sometimes more. The second option is simply Thompson's Water Seal. And one of the manufacturers of canvas tarps I deal with recommends uh, Thompson's Water Seal for retreatment, not for initial treatment, but for retreatment of their tarps out in the field as an alternative to the Canvac product. Simple, clear, you know, no stains or anything added, Thompson's water seal. It won't be as good as the Canvac, uh, but it does work. Now, the third option is instead of buying the inexpensive Harbor Freight cloth, buy pre-treated canvas cloth. Uh, that's something I sell. A lot of surplus stores sell it. Um, we get, we have it. Uh, it comes in big rolls, and we sell it by the yard. Uh, it's five feet wide, and I think we get twelve ninety-five a yard. And then, of course, it, all you TSP members. TSP uh, member support brigade members get uh, an additional 10% off of that. So it may be more expensive than the initial product, but it's already treated, and you're going to have better results because you cannot guarantee that something like that Harbor Freight cloth will take the treatment very easily. Um, if it's already been treated with any kind of chemical or finish when they made it, then it may not take the treatment Totally, it may not soak it in, and it may not take it evenly, and that's a problem we see with a lot of, especially cheaper imported fabrics when you're trying to waterproof them, is that a lot of times they will make these using recycled, either post-consumer or industrial scraps that of cotton that are recycled. And when they do that, whatever treatment, dyes or chemicals or anything else were, were in those uh, products originally, Some of that remains after the recycling process, and that can interfere with how well uh, your material takes the treatment because it won't soak it in and it won't get good penetration. And 
you know, you can't really tell looking at it. It could be that it's, you know, 80% virgin cotton, 20% recycled. But if that 20% recycled has had some kind of treatment and it doesn't take it, that can leave fibers untreated that will allow the moisture to mix, mix, uh, wick through. So take a look at all your options. Look at the cost and uh, the cheaper what, what seems like the cheaper way of buying the cheapest possible cloth and then treating it may not be the cheaper way when you factor in the cost of the quality uh, treating materials and also the fact that you may not end up with nearly as good a finished product because it's kind of a gamble. So I hope that helps. Uh, I'll send uh, Jack a link to the CanVac and also to the uh, the military-grade canvas that we've got in our shop, and hopefully put it in the show notes. Thanks for the show, Jack, and everybody have a great day. Okay, I have a couple things to add about, you know, if you're choosing something to waterproof a canvas yourself, what you can use and what works and what doesn't. Um, first of all, let's talk about Thompson's water seal. Thompson's water seal works. What it generally doesn't do is work really well for very long. It's something you generally reapply every year to every other year. On canvas, I don't have a lot of experience with it, so I don't know how often, but I would, I would reckon that you'd probably be reapplying it more than you might think you would. What is um, Thompson's water seal? It, it's pretty much denatured alcohol uh, and uh, paraffin wax. That's pretty much what it is. It's alcohol and wax, and of course the alcohol uh, creates a, a solvency for the wax. So basically what you're doing is applying a paraffin wax coating uh, to whatever you're applying Thompson's water seal to. And its ability to actually waterproof is based on how well that wax can penetrate, adhere, and remain on the tarp. In essence, you, 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 you could actually get enough paraffin wax and, and, and melt it and actually wax the damn thing and probably do better, though it's not very practical. Uh, and making your own mix with denatured alcohol and hot wax, probably not the best idea for you. But that's what Thompson's water seal is. It's, it's, it's wax and, and alcohol. So um, I thought, knowing that, what I might want to know then is, well, what is this CanVac product? V-A-K, C-A-N-V-A-K product. And... Uh, is is it in any way different, or is it just better marketing? And it's it's quite different. It's 85% mineral spirits, 12.5% inactive ingredients, probably water, uh, but it doesn't say what they are, but inactive ingredients, and 2.5% zinc napolthenate. And I probably said that wrong, napolthenate. Zinc napolthenate is considered toxic and, and a, a health risk, but only to people that are using it in pretty intense uh, situations because uh, it's used to treat things like nylon cordage and stuff like that, even though it's not recommended for vinyl and synthetic fabrics. Okay, um, But it, it's meant more for using, in this case, on tarps. Something with a, a cotton or organic base to it. And it, it does seem to work really well. So if you were trying to use something that had a bit more longevity uh, and has a history of being used in industrial applications for this type of thing, then I would think that this would probably be the way to go. What I can't tell you is what 
um, you know, pre-treated tarps are treated with. But I can tell you that being a big fan of using things like the surplus military shelter halves, um, I have ones that have really been rode hard and put away wet many times, and they still are very much waterproof. So it, it's probably a better way to go. And when we look at the actual cost, if we looked at something like a 12 by 14 canvas tarp, military tarp uh, from Old Grouch, um, you're looking at uh, $134.50. And that's with grommets and sewed up and, and all nice. It's $12.95 by the yard if you buy it as raw material. So it's really not that expensive if you're making a kind of a chicken house type description uh, out of uh, uh, using something like uh, uh, cattle panels. You're probably not going that big, I would think. Uh, 12 by 16 is pretty daggone big for a chicken house. And, uh, and 16 feet is the length of the cattle panels, right? So that would go completely covered without even bringing up any side-facing boards or whatever all the way end-to-end on a cattle panel, and, and that's 153 bucks minus your discount if you're an MSB member. So it might be the way to go. I'm a little confused about tarps and waterproofing and using tarps from Harbor Freight because the only tarps I see at Harbor Freight uh, are the you know, kind of reflective, all-purpose, all-weather tarps that don't really require any waterproofing. I don't really see any canvas tarps uh, available from Harbor Freight, so I'm not sure what the guy that asked this original question was really looking for at Harbor Freight. They do sell um, a 9x12 canvas drop cloth uh, for 16 bucks, 17 bucks. And uh, it's more for, like, protecting floors, uh, like a painter's drop cloth. And I wouldn't think that that would be heavy-duty enough, thick enough to, to warrant the type of use you're talking about. Um, if you did want to use the more conventional tarps, like we find at the box stores, at Harbor Freight, what have you, uh, the stuff that's more like a plasticky, reflective on one side, dark color on the other side, we've used those for that type of application. And if you go with the more heavy-duty ones, they work pretty good and you get quite a few seasons out of them. They and they cost a lot less. I mean, you can get uh, a 19 by 29 foot heavy duty reflective all purpose uh, weather resistant tarp for 60 bucks from Harbor Freight. Uh, and, and that's you know that's the again I would I would not use the general purpose medium duty ones. I'd go straight to heavy duty. Uh, but that's that's pretty good price on, on a fairly large tarp that will stand up for a couple seasons. It won't last as long as a military-grade canvas. It just won't. Again, we have stuff that God knows how old it was when I got it. I mean, it's the type of shelter half that I was issued when I was a soldier in the military back in the 80s and 90s. Um, and they looked old. I, got, I think I got them for like 7 bucks a piece from some surplus outlet. But they are original, you know, authentic. They've got some holes in them. they got some tears. But other than that, they're still waterproof. And I've had them for three seasons, and they've just been abused. They've not been maintained. They haven't been properly cleaned. They've just been abused, laid on the ground, put over top of stuff, impromptu shelters for the birds, what have you, and they're still going strong. So uh, a brand-new tarp, like Tim's talking about, stretched over uh, that type of a structure, it'd probably last you know, many, many years and uh, be something that would serve you a long time. If you want a temporary shelter, though, by all means, these lower-cost tarps like we're typically talking about, but they wouldn't need any waterproofing, I guess. So I know that kind of adds a lot to it, but I just want to give you a complete 
you know, set of your options that are available in a situation like this. Uh, Tim did not send me links, and we all slip sometimes with that. I slip putting links in the show notes once in a while when I say I'm going to. But I did look up both the CanVac and the tarpaulins available at uh, his website. And I'm going to go ahead and put a link to the Harbor uh, Freight heavy-duty tarps just so that people know what I'm actually talking about at Harbor Freight when I talk about the heavy-duty quality ones versus the medium-to-light-duty ones. Uh, with that, we are ready to wrap up today. Um, I'm going to wrap up with a song today from a band that really is responsible, I think, for many people of my generation even knowing what country music is. Uh, a band that actually changed what it meant to be a country music band in the late 70s and early 80s, and they have more number one hits than you can shake a stick at. I think it's probably between them and George Strait in a, a constant battle back and forth for who has the most number one hits in country music. And I'm talking, of course, about Alabama. And they have a lot of really great music. What I thought I would end with today, though, is a song that's particularly adept at many of the things we talk about on the Survival Podcast and making the best of our lives and not wasting our dash, not wasting the time that we have on planet Earth, not wasting a second of it. Understanding that it's like having your, your life is like having a giant barrel full of marbles. And, 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 and if you knew how long you were going to live, there's one marble in there for every day of your life. And that marble is, is all that you could accomplish. It is the sum total of energy and aptitude and expenditure and joy that you can experience in a single day. The, 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 the work and the joy, it's all summed up in that marble. And it's like a little energy thing. And when you pull that marble out in the morning, you stick it in your pocket, and it's, it's your potential for the day. And at the end of the day, whatever potential is in that marble that you didn't use, tough, you throw it away. And one day you're going to look in that bin, and there's one marble. And some of us know when we're down to that one marble, we die old men in a bed, surrounded by family, hopefully, knowing that this is it. And some of us, you know, we think that... That barrel's full, and it's not. There, there, you know, you think there's thousands of them left in there, and there's there's ten. You don't know. It, it could be a, a tragic illness. It could be a bus that hits you. We just don't know. But we can't worry about that from a standpoint of how much is left. We just have to know that there is a finite amount. And every day when we take that thing out of there and put it in our pocket for the day, make the dadgone most of it. Build liberty in your lifetime. Build freedom in your lifetime. Build businesses in your lifetime. Teach people in your lifetime. Make the most of what you have because you don't know how much you have. And at the end of the day, whether you've used what was there or not, that marble gets thrown away. It's never recovered. So this song is called Give Me One More Shot. And my message for you with it is, you know what? If you're still here, if you're still breathing, if you can still fog a mirror, you don't have one more shot Every single day is another shot. Keep that in mind as you head through this weekend. Build liberty. Build freedom in your lives. Build them in the lives of your family. Build it in the lives of your community. Remember, tick-tock, the clock ticks for us all. There's a, there's, there's, there's a sliding scale here with liberty. You're either building more of it or time advances past you and you have less of it. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Life ain't all that easy, I can testify to that It's been up and down and round and round You 
get to where I'm at If you could see how I'm living In this old car I drive Well, you'd probably wonder and even ponder Why I even want to stay alive So give me one more shot I'll give it all I got Let me open my eyes to the new sunrise I pray Give me one more chance I'll learn to dance and dance I'm satisfied just being alive Give me one more day I could complain about taxes Or the weather we're having today Go on and on about things that are wrong From New York to L.A. But that's just not my nature Sit around feeling sad We're only here for a while So why not smile Hey, living ain't all that bad So give me one more shot I'll give it all I got Let me open my eyes To a new sunrise, I pray Give me one more chance I learned to dance and dance Just thank the good Lord And ask Him please Give me one more shot I'll give it all I've got Let me open my eyes to a new sunrise I pray And give me one more chance I learned to dance a dance I'm satisfied Just being alive Give me one more day I'm satisfied Just being alive Give me one more day Give me one more shot I'll give it all I got Give me one more day Show me the way And give me one more day Give me one more